0: Today, uh, Pastor Nate is preaching at Radiant Church in Michigan, and so we have the privilege of having a special guest with us this morning. Uh, I want to set that up by saying North Central University has had a very instrumental role in a lot. Well, you guys just you cheered right at North Central University. Look at that, Pastor. You might have to you know come here more often. You get cheered before you even preach. Uh, North Central University has played an influential role in our church. Pastor Nate uh, graduated from North Central University. Myself the same. And a lot of our staff as well. Um, today we have the privilege of getting to hear from the new president of North Central. Back in February, the Board of Regents appointed uh, Pastor Scott Hagan as the next president of North Central. And his first day on the job was June 1st. Uh, most recently he has been pastoring a church he founded in Sacramento, California called Real Life Church, a multi-site church, much like Emmanuel. So would you do me a favor, would you warmly welcome President Scott Hagan.
1: Test, test, test right there. Well, yo tomo tres años de español de escuela, pero yo conozco muy poco. That's it. Took three years of Spanish in school and I know nothing. That's what I just said. So, you were the people who speak Spanish were excited for about 10 seconds of that sentence. I go, Oh, he knows nothing. Anyway, great to be here for the second service. We just want to welcome uh, those campuses, you know, part of this wonderful uh, gathering of churches at Maple Grove and Elk River. So, for 15 years, I pastored in Elk Grove, California. Um, and I just preached in Elk Creek, California. So, but I think I've got it right. But I told the first service when I said the word Maple uh, Grove this morning, it triggered a bad thing. Last night, I, I have a crazy life right now. Um, obviously a brand new uh, assignment that the Lord has brought to my wife and I uh, to serve. My daughter is a graduate of North Central. I have a deep affection for the university. She graduated with her business degree back in 2007. And in her and her husband pastor a church in Sao Paulo, Brazil. and uh, But North Central changed my daughter's life. It was in that season that I got to know Dr. Anderson, became a tremendous friend, mentor. Uh, thought he was uh, the great uh, template of spirit and scholarship and leadership and uh, was a, a great, great role model. And so North Central holds a big place in my life. And um, But this has been a shift. So we left the local church ministry after 35 years on April 2nd, so I've been preaching around the country, different places throughout Minneapolis and different spots in the country the last eight weeks, um, but, my, but I'm also crushing nine units, crushing uh, nine units. I don't mean crushing like getting A's, I mean, but I, I think I'm doing okay, but crushing, being crushed by nine units of graduate work. I'm finishing my PhD. At Gonzaga University in Spokane. And so in the summer, I had nine units to finish up. My dissertation will start this fall, um, that I'm wrapping up that portion of my own education. So I am leading a university and dying inside one of them myself, you know, on another part of the country. So I put on, I get my backpack, my book bag. I was in the library. So I have five weeks of summer school that I'm doing, uh, which I leave on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, and Fridays. Uh, I go away for four days. I do my NCU work over the phone for those couple days while I finish, I have one more week of this. So I've been going back and forth between Spokane, Washington and Minneapolis uh, for the last few weeks. And during this time, I didn't want my wife just to sit by herself, she's wrapping up, getting ready for the big move, uh, final move here in August. So she's been back in Sacramento. So needless to say, I've been somewhat on my own in my apartment downtown uh, on Hennepin. And let's just say that the food supply is getting a little low, so I got in yesterday um, later, uh, which was Saturday, and I came from Spokane, and I, I was hungry, and I had to go meet somebody, and then I met them, and I got back to the apartment, and, you know, I just, I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a chef. I, I don't cook. I do toast. Uh, that's about my limitation um, or my aspiration, I should say, and I am just never got into cooking. I need to have it prepared for me, uh, I'm terrible with that stuff, and so it's a bad bad uh, perfect storm going on right here without a wife for literally three weeks. Um, and so it's getting a little bare in there, but i op- I was feeling total despair until I opened the freezer and I saw two two last frozen egos waffles, and so literally provision from the Lord, you know the whole thing, honestly, I felt like joy, uh, uh, like oh. I can toast these two waffles. I put them in. Had just a little bit of butter left, just enough to kind of barely scrape over the top of the waffles. Get them cooked. Get them on a plate. Put some butter on it. Open up the fridge. Reach in for my syrup. And I'm kind of watching the twins game a little bit. And I'm going that. And I squirt it all over the top of my waffles. And it just doesn't look right. And I looked down, and I had smothered my waffles in uh, soy sauce. Uh, <clears throat> I lifted up the plate. I thought for a moment, smelled it. <sighs> it just, so when, they, when I saw the word maple today, Maple Grove, it was like maple syrup. Here it is again within the same day, again maple. But anyway, we welcome everybody from Maple, maple Grove. We're gonna be in Daniel chapter five in just a moment. We're gonna continue the series out of the book of Daniel. And again, I just wanna thank everybody connected with North Central has made my family and I feel unbelievably welcomed in this city and in this new role and assignment. And Dr. Anderson, I know this was his home church, um, spoke fondly of this place and his relationship with Pastor Nate and uh, Jody. And I spoke here actually back about 12, 13 years ago on a Sunday night. Uh, I I think the place wasn't remodeled. I don't know how it was shaped, but I remember being here on a Sunday night when uh, my daughter was a student at North Central But Emmanuel has just had such a profound impact in this community, and it goes without saying. Um, But all the North Central students and alumni that fill these great churches, and especially this one, has just gone out of their way to love on my wife and I. We're very, very excited. We've got tremendous momentum uh, at the school. Uh, Our enrollment is above projection for this September we're really, really excited about what's about to happen at the university. And Dr. Anderson set up the whole thing. He created all the conditions for the new president to be successful, and I honor him greatly for that. But keep us in your great prayers. Uh, we got great days ahead. So um, I just want to share, before we get to Daniel 5, um, the Lord laid this on my heart a few months ago. I've been sharing this in the churches that I go to about what I believe are the behaviors or the traits or the three functions of a caring church. Now, I pray that you are a caring church. I know you are. You're a church that looks like heaven. I don't get to be in a lot of churches. This is a lot like the congregations that we pastored, uh, churches that look like heaven. Uh, You walk in, you don't see any dominant people group. Uh, You don't see a dominant age group. You see a real blend of what the kingdom is all about. And Emmanuel, you get a gold medal uh, just as an outsider coming in to the beauty of your congregation. It's very, very evident and vibrant. Um, But, With that said, I think there's three things that a caring church must do well. And I know this may be simplistic, but when you think about when Elisha came upon the Shunammite, uh, or the woman whose husband had just died and the debts were so great that they were arresting her sons and enslaving the sons to pay off the debt. It's 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 a picture of the gospel, the condition or the need for the gospel. We're born into this condition. We are born into a sequence of slavery, spiritual slavery, because of the debts that we have accrued generationally because of sin. And so the prophet walks up to this woman, and I saw this about two years ago in the Bible. I've read it hundreds of times, but I never saw it. And this prophet who received open heaven revelation on many details (coughs) that God gave him, He sees this quandary that this woman has and the first thing out of his mouth is, how can I help you? How can I help you? This whole thing is predicated on that phrase. The Ministry from Neighborhoods to Nations of Emmanuel is basically telling a world that is bound and wounded and hurting, hey, how can we help? If the prophet Elisha began his ministry With the ministry of helps, how much more should we? Just because we're spirit-filled and we are prophetic people doesn't graduate us out of that phrase, how can I help you? What can I do for you? I think a caring church, when I think about a caring church, I see three things. I think the first thing a caring church does is that they create starting points for people. Uh, In in the most simplest uh, of ways to think about this, in the book of Ruth, Naomi was the primary character of the book of Ruth, and if anybody did the math and came up with the equation or the finding that, that sounded legitimate, it was Naomi, when she says that God is against me. Husband was dead, two adult sons died, she was left without any legacy in a time of famine. If anybody kinda had a right to kind of shake their fists at the heavens, it was probably Naomi. And she said, God is against me. Matter of fact, I'm gonna change my name to Mara. Can you imagine changing your name to fit your worldview? That you are so upset and mad at God that you change your name to reflect the bitterness that you feel in your heart toward God, that he, he has ruined my life. And so she tries to scoot Orpa and Ruth, her two daughters-in-law, away. And they both at first say no, and then Naomi doubles down on her pain and says, if I was to get married tonight, you wouldn't stick around till I had boys and let them grow up. And no, you need to go away, God's against me. You go get a life for yourself. And Orpah, like many churches in America, leaves. Now Orpah and Ruth, Orpah, like a lot of churches, they give it one shot. They don't leave it first, they give it one shot. Hey, no, we're with you. But then when they realize that the pain pushing back is stronger than they realize and the love pressing in, they leave. Hey, we tried to touch the hurting of our city. We tried to reach the poor. We tried to bring reconciliation to our city, but man, they don't want it. Okay, we tried. That's what a lot of churches do. Not this one. The spirit of Ruth is on this church. Saying, I'm sorry, I'm gonna go where you go. I'll lodge where you lodge. Your people are gonna be my people. Where you die, I will die. And the Bible says when Naomi saw the determination of Ruth, she stopped urging her to leave because the love pressing in has to be more powerful than the pain that presses back. And so at the end of chapter one, we're talking about caring churches create starting points. The Bible says at the little last little tail in verse of chapter one of Ruth, it says, so Ruth and Naomi made their way to Bethlehem, the house of bread, at the beginning of the barley harvest. I love how God has a way, even in the most traumatized conditions, situations of slipping in a new beginning. That's what a caring church does. You create starting points for people whose lives are in a free fall. You're reaching out. That's why you do classes and groups and outreaches. You're creating starting points for people to get get a start at something that they can begin again. The second thing a caring church does is you help people protect their progress. It's not enough to climb the hill if every time you climb it, you slide back down it. People at some point are gonna give up on their Christian faith if they're not taught how to protect the progress, if they're not taught how to, in biblical community, (coughs) preserve the transformation that they've experienced. In Galatians chapter one, the apostle Paul said, who's bewitched you? I can't believe that you've so quickly abandoned what you've started by faith. You're trying to perfect in the flesh. He was basically saying, you've lost all your progress. People will only stay at this for so long, friends if they constantly lose their progress. So churches, the reason we gather, we connect, we pray, we learn each other's names, the reason that we form biblical community and small groups and Bible studies and all of these things is that we are creating the conditions for people to protect the spiritual progress that they've made. Great, caring churches create starting points for people and then they help them protect the progress. Third great thing that caring churches do, and here's your nerd word for the day, is that you create, you help them, and inspire them toward autopoiesis. I love this word. What's it mean to be autopoetic? Autopoiesis, for most of our lives, was a biological term for cell reproduction. Educators took the term in the 60s, and they began to see it more as behavior, and it simply means the ability you've learned how to learn. You're able to replicate growth on your own. I don't mean that you break free from biblical community, but you're helping inspire people to grow when nobody is watching them. They can grow when no one is around. People don't wanna be monitored, friends. They wanna be mentored. And they need to know how to grow, become auto I can be alone with my Bible, And I can be alone with God, and I can grow. I know how to develop myself spiritually. I think caring churches inspire people toward self-growth, not selfishness or self-centeredness, but being able to know how to feed themselves, know how to grow and develop their faith. And so I'm praying that over Emmanuel. I'm praying that for the churches that, that I've had a chance to help influence and start and plant and encourage, that we would be great Places of starting points. We'd protect people's, help them protect the progress and we would help people begin to grow. There's, there's one last resource um, I just want to tell you about. Slip it in here just for 60 seconds. Um, and I carry in my pocket this coin. And so this will lead into our Daniel 5 study. This coin was given to me by the commander of one of our military bases in America. Um, I believe there's a photograph that I, this is the only one that I'm allowed to to show, um, was this picture, Um, if you could just kinda keep it up there. There's about 70 people in this room, and these are the US Special Forces. I had the privilege, um, not long ago, of being invited to speak to the Night Stalkers, the 160th, they are the Black Hawk pilots, but the Night Stalkers are the elite elite. These are the actual pilots in this room, were the ones that flew the mission uh, to get Osama bin Laden, the Zero Dark Thirty, not the movie stars, but the actual people that the movie was based on. They had just gotten Captain Phillips. They would just flown Bo Bergdahl home. They said that was a very interesting flight for those of you that follow that stuff. But these leaders, um, I was honored to be only the second civilian. Herschel Walker got to be in this room few years back, and through a set of unique circumstances, I had a chance to go into this room and teach them the basic principles of this book that has accidentally emerged in my life. Um, not out of strategy, but purely out of accident. Um, I've loved to talk on leadership. I've always believed that leadership is a tremendous conversation for evangelism. I believe that Jesus, when he called Peter and John, he said, I'll make you fishers of men. There was a inspiring leadership undertone. I'm going to cause you to be influenced to your generation and to influence people. And I think we're born with the desire to make a difference in our life. And so I always wanted to put into the hands of our people, a tool that they could give to the people they work with and so I've been writing on leadership my whole life. And social media kind of gave me a brand new platform. Um, so I've been writing these little little statements on leadership for years. I compiled them, started this Facebook site. It's grown to over 100,000 people. And we took, we took, I have about 1,500 original posts on there. We took 500 of them last year and put them into this very simple collection of 500 discussion starters on leadership. And I did it for the folks in our church but it has really spread into crazy places uh, in crazy ways this last year. The other day, someone sent me a screenshot. uh, uh, Dan Riccio, who is the vice president under Tim Cook at Apple Computer, is talking to all of his executives and quoting from this book. Uh, A guy just bought 500 of these and gave them to every police officer in Charlotte. Uh, The chaplain for the Minnesota State Assembly, his name is Mike Smith, two months ago gave this to every Minnesota state legislator uh, here in the state. Um, And he told me two weeks ago, he said, I go to office, to office, to office every week. He says, this book is sitting on people's desks like you can't believe. And he says, the head of the Senate of the Assembly, I'm still learning my my terminology from Minnesota, came and said that I use that thing every single day. And he said, hey, the person who who compiled that is here in town, so I think the door's opening to go speak uh, to that group of people. Um, So all that to say... Um, a lot of us don't work in the perfect world. We don't work for a perfect person. Matter of fact, how many of you work for the Antichrist? The Antichrist is your boss. <laughs> no, you work for the Antichrist. You know who it is. All these prophecy teachers, you're going, that's ridiculous. I know who the Antichrist is. I work for the Antichrist. I know their name. I know her name. I'll show you where they're at. They just haven't been revealed to the earth yet, but I work for the Antichrist. How many know what I'm talking about. It, it gets a little crazy. Hopefully that person's not visiting today uh, that just saw you lift your hand. So you think I'm the Antichrist. That'll be your meeting tomorrow morning. But anyway, people are getting this for their teams. They're getting five copies, 10 copies. They're getting several copies. They're giving them to bosses. If you manage teams, lead teams. Uh, it's for ministers, churches, but it is for people in the marketplace that don't know the Lord. It has created an unbelievable conduit for conversations leading to evangelism, but through the mechanism of leadership. And so those are out. We, we almost sold them all. I think there's some left out there in lobby that Lobby 3. Afterwards, we have a couple boxes left out there. Uh, so come by and get one of those. Daniel chapter 5. Um, Daniel chapter 5 should be after chapter eight uh, in the book of Daniel. It's one of the unique chapters that is out of chronological sequence. It, it really is the end of the Babylonian run. You've been learning about the book of Daniel. I love the book of Daniel. I've taught it through verse by verse probably four or five times in my leadership career. It's one of my favorite all-time books. I love the mathematics of Daniel. I love the practicality. I love the. It has a Sunday school flavor to it and a very deep prophetic uh, matrix that you're trying to understand through the book of Daniel. I think it's a book like none other. Um, As I read through the book of Daniel, it's important to understand as we read chapter five about this king named Belshazzar, um, who is really a co-regent, a co-leader of Babylon. His father was the king who was the actual son of Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar, most believe, is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Not all scholars, but the preponderance of scholars believe he's the grandson. And the father, who was the leader of Babylon, vacated Babylon and went to Arabia and left Babylon with the kid. So he was literally living in the mansion, something he never built, something that his grandfather established He's simply living in the mansion in all the opulence and indulgence of his generation. And so Belshazzar is going to be the last leader. This is the last day of the Babylonian empire. It's an unbelievable story and you read it and you cannot believe that the light doesn't go on in this man's life. But then we are surrounded by people like this all the time that are just like Belshazzar. I wanna read a few of the verses, and then we're gonna dive in and talk about this powerful, powerful story. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of a thousand. That's a large party, friends. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple Some 70 years earlier, these vessels were located in like a museum, a Smithsonian Institute of Babylon. They were relics or trophies of past military victories. They weren't functional cups and saucers and plates to use. They simply were memorabilia, almost a patriotic patriotic emblem of the Babylonian earlier wars. This guy goes in takes them from behind the glass, and starts using them to drink wine out of. <clears throat> For the first time ever, that was happening in Babylon. So what you read there is not a practice. It had never been practiced before. So he gathered all the nobles and the concubines, and this massive party is taking place in the, in the temple that he did not build. He's just a generation enjoying the indulgence of the previous generation's work. It says, verse three, then they brought out the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand and that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack. His knees began to knock. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke to the wise men of Babylon. Any man who can read this inscription and explain the interpretation to me will be clothed in purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler of the kingdom, his father being first, he being second, this person would be next. Then all the king's wise men came in, they could not read the inscription, which meant uh, weighed, weighed, uh, balance, divided. And I'll explain that in just a few moments. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting this inscription. No one could read it, though. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, his face grew even more pale, his nobles were perplexed. The queen then entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the, in the days of your father, illuminate, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your king, the king appointed him chief, Of the magicians and conjurers and chaldeans and diviners this was because an extraordinary spirit knowledge and insight interpretation of dreams explanation of enigmas and the solving of difficult problems were found in this daniel whom the king named belt shazar but let daniel interesting that she didn't call him this let daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation so daniel is pulled out of obscurity. Now, when you read the book of Daniel, people lose track of how old he is in these stories, because we think of, he wasn't there in the fiery furnace, but we think of these three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, peers of Daniel, standing bravely against the culture, being thrown in the fire, and we have this image of always a teenage Daniel. Well, Daniel was probably 15, we can safely say within 12 or 24 months of 15 when he was taken captive. By the time this story is happening that we're reading, he's 85. He's about to die. He is within a few years of his death. He spent his entire life, his entire adult life in a set of conditions that nobody would choose. I talk to people like that all the time. Sometimes they're in a, set of conditions or circumstances that last a lifetime. But remember, even if it lasts a lifetime, it's still temporary, okay? But his whole assignment was captivity, not his season, his life. Daniel's fascinating because like Joseph, you get to look at their entire life from childhood through adulthood, Daniel and Joseph find themselves embedded in the two most wicked nations of the Old Testament, Egypt and Babylon. And yet all of this scripture that's dedicated to Joseph and Daniel, you can't find one negative trait, spoke about their life. Their whole life was lived, especially Daniel's, in adversity, in captivity, kidnapped, and left in that condition his whole life. He never really broke free from that season. Now, he was older now, and he wasn't being utilized by Belshazzar or his father. He was kind of in obscurity, house arrest, just kind of living in the area. And they pull him out of hiding for this grand moment of interpretation. But Daniel is in his easily his mid-80s when this story happens. So they bring Daniel out, brought him out before the king, and Belshazzar is clueless. Belshazzar, folks, has a thousand people. He's having a party inside the Playboy Mansion. I want you to envision that. It's a Playboy Mansion of Babylon. Surrounding his house are the Persians, the army. This guy has no idea that his clock has run out, that he has timed out that he's gonna die that night. He's figuring if I can keep the party big enough, and if I can keep enough noise, I will have a dissonance and a disconnect from the reality of my world that is around me that's closing in on me. He has no clue that he's under judgment, that he's been encamped by the enemy and he's about to be destroyed. He just turns up the music, Invites more people, drinks more booze, and is partying and figures if the party's bigger than the than the world around me, I somehow will be safe. And in the middle of that, God shows up and with his hand and writes on the wall something. So God's word becomes bigger than that party, becomes bigger than the crowd, and suddenly Belshazzar's left there shaking drained to blood, trying to figure out what on earth is going on and who's ruining this party. Nobody can tell them. They bring in Daniel. And he says, I've heard about you and the spirit of the gods, verse 14, is in you that illumination inside extraordinary wisdom has been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers are brought in before me that they might read the inscription and make its interpretation known, but they could not do it. Verse 16, but I personally have heard about you that you were able to give interpretation and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed in purple, wear a necklace of gold, and you'll be third in the kingdom. And Daniel, this 85-year-old man says, keep your gifts for yourself. He doesn't say fool, but I bet he wanted to say it, (laughs) fool. Give your rewards to somebody else. However, I'll read the inscription to the king. And he says, O king, the most high God granted you sovereignty, grandeur, glory, majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the people's nations and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished he killed, whomever he wished he spared alive, and whoever he wished he elevated, whoever he wished he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was disposed of from his royal throne and driven away. Verse 22, yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. You know the story and it's had no effect on your life. And so he begins to give him the interpretation. So real quick, I want to notice a couple things real quick about the story. First of all, Belshazzar, he commits what I call the central conceit of the human heart. The central conceit of humanity is when you're in trouble, you double down on your worldview. When you feel in trouble, now he was surrounded by the Persians, and instead of being humbled by it, he doubles down on his arrogance and his pride and his worldview and his practice of materialism. And, and, and addiction, and pride, and crowds, and noise. He doubled down. That's the conceit of the human heart, is that we default to this other place instead of humbling ourselves and throwing us up on the mercy of God. It doesn't awaken anything in us. He tasted the wine. He gave orders to bring in the gold vessels, to have them brought out of the temple. So the second thing about the story is this. When your behavior goes from bad to blasphemous, God takes notice. Now watch this. There's two ways to awaken God in America. The church can pray, it can fast, it can believe we can walk in faith, or a society can operate in in behavior that moves from bad to blasphemy. And now the hand of God was moving against that society. I believe we are entering times in which the church in America will become the exiled church, and sermons will not win the debate. It comes a moment when God answers from heaven down to earth. There are those occasions in the Bible where God said, I'm I'm just going to take over this answer right now. I'm going to bring the answer from heaven. The confusion is too great in the land. So the blasphemy at this level had never been seen these vessels were not to be used for this. It was bad enough that they'd been taken and placed in on display. But to have them as the vessels for your drunkenness as you celebrate and praise the God of stone and wood and that which is made with human hand was an act of blasphemy, friends. I believe the same actions are happening in our nation. The human vessel, the bodily vessels being used in ways that is not just bad behavior, but blasphemous behavior. Things that were never intended to be used. How God constructed us in His image, His divine design was never intended to be used this way. And I believe the hand of God is moving. And He's writing, and His written word is going to trump the party, friends. Mark my word. And so this moment of blasphemy is a catalyst to God doing something historic. The third thing I see is that there's a difference, friends, between a response and a conversion. The Bible says that the king's face grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints were slack. It sounds like somebody who's about to be saved. But the king called not out to God, He called his conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. He went back to witchcraft. He defaulted. So that moment where he was aware of God's presence in the room, he responded to it, but it didn't convert him because he wouldn't humble himself before God. There's a vast difference between response and conversion. Between simply acknowledging something's happening, I can even physically feel conviction or illness going on. Something is going on. I can even feel blessing around me. But it didn't convert him because he still operated in pride and response to the presence of God. He wouldn't humble himself. Here's my fourth observation. And probably the most important of all of this. This 85-year-old man is brought into the scene. I thought of Caleb. I think it's Joshua 14, where Joshua or Caleb goes to Joshua and they're handing out the promised land, and Caleb goes, Hey Joshua, you know, 40 years ago Moses promised us this. I've been waiting for this. He goes, I want my portion. He goes, I want, I want the hill country. Give me the tough assignment. I don't want the flatlands. Caleb at 80, he goes, he goes I'm 85. He goes, it's been 45 years or 45 years since that time when Moses said this to us. He goes, uh, as my strength was then, so it is now. So 85 was the new 40. And he said, I want the Anakin. And he says, so Caleb goes, okay, I'm gonna give you Kiriath Arba." This little phrase in Joshua 14, what's that? That's a town that used to be called Hebron, which is back in the news, by the way. Hebron is where Abraham's buried and Isaac's buried and Jacob is buried, it's the burial of the patriarchs. But this Anak, this giant, if the Anak were eight-footers, Kiriath was a nine-footer among the eight-footers. He was the giant of the giants. He came in and usurped the land that was Hebron. He conquered it, he was not the founder of it, he was the conqueror of the land. Now get this, I didn't share this in the first service. off Arba, this giant, conquers Hebron and for hundreds of years it changes its name. It's now living by the conquered identity, not what it was created, founded, designed, not its origin, friends, but the conquered name is what it went by. Until Caleb at 85, <laughs> goes, I want the hills. My strength now at 85 is the same as it was at 40. He stayed young because he was hungering for the presence of God and the promises of God to be fulfilled in his life. You want to stay young? Pursue the promises of God. It has a profound effect on the aging process. The Bible then says that Caleb... He went to this land that for hundreds of years was called by the wrong name. He conquered it, and from that point forward, he restores, he restores the land to its original purpose. It's called Ebron. To this day, it's called Ebron. I heard it in the news this week. Because an 85-year-old man who had the promises of God raging in his soul like a fire who said, I want the tough assignment. Give me the hills. Don't give me the easy assignment. I got the word richly dwelling in my heart. He went and restored the identity of the land. That's the power of a person who lives filled, filled with faith, friends, filled with faith. And the fire of the word in the heart. I believe that Daniel was that kind of leader. Now watch this. The fourth observation, and we're wrapping here, musicians can come, they're already here. Beautiful. Don't you just, I told the first service, don't you just feel hope when you see the musicians moving? It does does something to you. Oh, there's musicians are coming, thank goodness. I always tell preachers, I don't care if you're preaching lousy, Call for the musicians, the whole room will engage with you again. (laughs) But I believe this fourth point is the critical one of the teaching and we're gonna pray. I believe the hour we live in requires that you and I become what I call total package believers. Not partial package, total package believers. What do you mean by that? The Bible says that there is a man in your kingdom in whom this is a spirit of the holy gods and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, wisdom were given to him. This was because an extraordinary spirit of knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and the solving of difficult problems was found in Daniel. We cannot have believers who simply come into a room and know how to worship we've got to be people like joshua or joseph and daniel that's what i pray about our university i love higher ed i'm getting my phd at gonzaga i'm with some of the biggest minds in the world sit in my classes but i know this and i share this with the class regularly i appreciate it i love earning learning and earning what we're doing But if you let your brain get twice the size of your heart, you will be dead in the water, friends, in this day and age. We cannot worship reason. And we cannot worship the vain philosophies of man. Now with that said, we don't build a greenhouse and all live inside this little room together. I think here's what God is after. These are the kind of graduates that I'm praying for. That whether you lead a business like my daughter when she graduated from North Central or you lead a church the way I've done for 35 years. I think a lot of kids come to North Central thinking they're gonna be a business major and they end up pastoring some of the greatest churches in America. I think some of the students come there thinking they're gonna pastor a church end up becoming some of the great business minds in America. That stuff sorts itself out in that powerful incubator of that university. It's a powerful place. Seen it over and over again. But no matter what, you end up doing in this hour in which we live. You better be a total package believer. When Daniel and Joseph emerged in civic leadership in the two most wicked nations in the Old Testament without having their character tainted one time over decades of recorded life history in Scripture. Think about that. These men could interpret dreams and also forecast the food supply for the society. When I talk about a total package leader, I'm talking about the ability to get into any setting that you're in, from the pulpit, to the boardroom, to the classroom, to whatever it may be in your life. And being able to interpret dreams prophetically and also operate in such wisdom that the enigmas of the culture, that they cannot solve. The wisest of the wise cannot solve it but suddenly God's man and God's woman who is filled with the spirit and is strategically placed as a total package believer able to operate in any setting when i had the privilege of standing before those men and handful of women in that room i had to craft my presentation i knew i've been in those settings many times in corporate settings and business settings and i had to craft my message in a certain way but when I was done some of the greatest leaders I've ever met in my life lined up like a youth camp in a single file line with tears coming down their face saying sir I'm not gonna make it to convergence I talked about I do this presentation on convergence and leadership I'm not gonna make it I'm, I'm, I'm self-destructing I talked about research proves if you're a high competency achiever early of all high-competency-achieving adults early on begin to radically deteriorate north of 45. Very few high-achieving people early continue to develop north of 45. And I taught them that. I taught them why that is. These people who are designing missions that you cannot believe, lined up because... The Spirit of God upon an instrument no different than you and me, we're the same person. Began to speak to the enigma, the complexity of their world in a way that they couldn't contend with it and they wanted more. I was invited back the next day to spend the day in the office. I couldn't believe it. I heard Ash Carter was on the phone talking to this general over here. It was just, I just couldn't believe I was allowed to be in this room. And to let these pilots come in as they would want to and spin. I had 10 phenomenal conversations praying with, speaking about Jesus privately, praying with these leaders because God opened the door. We need total package leaders, believers in this hour. And lastly is that The warning is the window. Belshazzar, he got a warning, but it was God's window. He could have chosen a different path instead of pouring more materialism and more flattery and more of his default thinking. I just wanna ask right now for God to do a fresh, wonderful work in this house. I know we went long. Let's stand together.